looking at the last paragraph of Romans chapter 6, the last couple of paragraphs, reading at verse 15 through verse uh, 23. We're going to take another peek at this passage next week, and then I think we'll be able to move on to chapter 7. Promises, promises. But let's read together at verse 15 of Romans 6 as Paul continues to unpack for us the wonder of this salvation that has been accomplished for us in Jesus. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But how was that working for you? But what fruit were you getting at that time time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I heard someone say this last week, that at 14 years of age, he memorized verse 23 and understood it to be a verse to be employed in the evangelization of non-believers Looks to me like verse 23 is a verse to be employed in the evangelization of believers. The gospel is not only for the lost, it is for the found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be with us as we come to your word. Help us. Please, Jesus, help us to hear these things and to see what is extended to us in these things, most especially that what you intend to do is set yourself before us as the one master truly loving and full of life. Help us to see you, Jesus. Grant your spirit to us to that end. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. A lot of you know that one of my all-time favorite movies is um, the 1979 version of Dracula, the story of Dracula. Now, you wonder about that. I can hear some chuckles. You wonder about that. I'm um, I'm always a little hesitant to mention movies that are favorite movies of mine because... 
people, you know, may, and I understand this, may have scruples about films. I have scruples about films, about what should be seen, what shouldn't be seen. And, and this is a film that in a, that in a powerful, power, powerful way uh, portrays evil, depicts evil. And it's not a film probably that everyone should see. I'll tell you, unlike the CCEF conference coming up, there's no sex in this film. It's a very discreet film, but it's a very, very powerful portrayal of evil and the seductiveness of it. Film stars Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier, who plays the part of Abraham von Helsing. And uh, Kate Nelligan, whose name you may not know, is Lucy Seward, who is engaged to Jonathan Harker, who is a solicitor, who is a lawyer, who is entrusted with uh, seeing to the affairs of Count Dracula, who moves into this mansion that's got cobwebs and is dark and is nasty and all of the rest. But Lucy is drawn into the deceit, the web of death that Dracula spins. She's seduced by him. She is bitten by him. And in an incredibly dramatic scene where Lucy, filled with fury and rage, and strength, strength enough to overpower two or three or four men. She is finally subdued in a padded cell in an insane asylum, and she is frothing. And Abram van Helsing walks into that cell and thrusts the medicine that she needs into her face. And the medicine that she needs is the cross. And the cross she first reacts against and recoils from. But the cross subdues her. And in this very dramatic moment, she reaches out for the cross and grasps the cross and pulls it to herself clutches the cross. Now, if I were to try to find a picture for you of how the Christian life is lived, I can't find a better picture than that. I can't find a better picture than that at multiple levels. The Christian life is not at its deepest levels a spiritual self-help program. The Christian life at its deepest levels is not finding a better system. Barb teases me because every time we go away on vacation, I create a new schedule. Like a new schedule is going to save me. The Christian life at its deepest levels is not a how-to program or a moral code. The Christian life, as we suggested last week, is very simply the much more difficult business 
of moment by moment, day after day, learning to turn from the insanity, the death, the foolishness, the bankruptcy of sin, however it manifests itself. And turning to embrace Jesus Christ. As best I can understand Paul, as best I can understand this passage, that is what Paul is trying to say to us. It's what we learned last week in verses 12 through 14 as we looked at those verses. Don't go on presenting your members to sin as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness, but in a decisive act, in an act that involves the whole of your person, a very sober act, recognizing that we are in a war, in this very decisive act, moment by moment, present yourselves to Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say, go find a good self-help book. Go find a new how-to program in the midst of this war, in the midst of this battle. And anyone who has been a Christian for more than five minutes knows something of the reality of this battle. Knows something of the insanity of sin and the imprisoning effects of sin and the repulsiveness of it. Can I just say this? I want to say this lovingly, but I want to say it as directly as I know how. Please hear me. I'm not wagging the finger. I'm not casting judgment upon anyone. But if you don't know, as a Christian, the depth of this struggle against the insanity of sin, against its imprisoning effects, against the fruit that it produces, which is always death. If you don't know the reality of that struggle, I can't have any confidence that you're a Christian. People come to me all the time and they say, I struggle so much, how can I be a Christian? I say, precisely. That is what this is. Why would Paul use the language of warfare if it weren't a warfare? You remember from last week, the word that's translated instruments is actually literally the word weapons. This is a battle. And a person who doesn't feel the weight of the battle, I can't, I just can't be sure. If you were to come to me and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I would have to say, we've got to have a conversation prior to Romans chapter 6. We've got to have a conversation about what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, which is where the battle, the warfare, the struggle begins. So I want to say this lovingly. If this is is all a mystery to you, if this idea of a struggle and a battle against sin, not sin out there, I said this last week, the warfare is not out there, the warfare is in here. The problem is not a political agenda. The problem is not a particular person. The problem is not my wife. The problem is not my child. The problem is not my employer. The problem is me. 
And if you don't understand that, please come and see me. We have to have that first conversation. The person who knows Christ and knows the reality and the depth of this struggle. And what Paul said last week in verses 12 through 14, he says again this week in verse 19. He says it a second time. If he says it a second time, I guess we need to think about it a second time. Verse 19, just as you once in an ongoing, consistent way presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now, same verb, same tense, a decisive, self-conscious, personal, sober thing, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. He's saying it a second time. So I want to probe this a bit more in the minutes that we have left. left, And and then again, we'll probe it a bit more next week. Because what we're dealing with here, actually, is sin sickness in our souls. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with what is in our hearts. We're dealing with what is at the core of our being. And we're dealing with how that stuff begins to be changed. And this week, we're going to look at four things very quickly painfully quickly. We're going to look at restoration. We're going to look at return and rest. And then there's going to be a reminder for us, number four. And then next week, we're going to look at the medicine. All right? So next week is the medicine that my sin-sick soul desperately needs. As I find myself in the midst of this struggle, those are the four words I want to suggest to summarize what is going on in this passage Restoration, return, rest, and remember. So restoration, what do we mean? Why do I use this word? Let me ask you this, and and again, this may feel like, like review. It may feel like we're passing over things that we've talked about before. But let me ask you this question. If someone asks you, what does salvation mean to you? Someone comes to you and says, what does salvation mean to you? Asks you to explain it. What would you say? What would you say? If you were to say, well, salvation means that I am forgiven. It means that my sins have been washed away. It means that Jesus died on the cross paid the penalty for my sin, and so now I have peace with God. I have acceptance with God. In fact, I have a standing in his presence. I have access into his very presence, and I've been firmly planted in his presence, never to be uprooted. There is nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. I'm reconciled to him. If you were to say that, I would say, hallelujah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then I would say, tell me more. Tell me more. And if you were to look back at me and were to say, what more? What more? I would say, 
What about your restoration? What about your deliverance? What about your reformation? You know, reformation isn't this thing that's stuck back in the 16th century. Tell me about your reformation. Tell me about that part of it. You see, if salvation is only my forgiveness, if salvation is only acceptance, reconciliation, access into the presence of God, being firmly planted, never to be removed again, then Paul would have jumped from chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 1, or to chapter 8, verse 1. This is what he would have written. He would have written, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, all of those terms, reconciliation, acceptance, no threat of condemnation, those things all have to do with law and our legal standing in the presence of God. And if all Paul is concerned about is our legal standing in the presence of God, chapter 5, verse 12, through the end of chapter 7, vanish and disappear. But he's concerned about more than that. Because salvation is more than that. Salvation is bigger than that. Salvation is not only about your forgiveness or your justification it is also about your restoration. Paul introduces a word in this text, in this passage, that we haven't seen before. We haven't seen it since verse 7 of chapter 1. And it appears twice in the passage. Did you catch it? Did you catch the new word, right? I've shared this with the folks at the refuge on Friday morning. As we're working through Ephesians over there, I'm suggesting to them that what we're doing is building a gospel vocabulary. There is a vocabulary to this gospel. There are words that have content and significance and meaning. We're doing the same thing in Romans. And Paul gives us another word in our gospel vocabulary. It's there twice. It's the word sanctification. Sanctification. Did you see it? Verse 19. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Verse 22. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. New word. Last time we heard it was in verse 7 of chapter 1 where Paul addresses the Romans as those who are called to be saints. Same root word. To be called to be a saint is to call to be sanctified. Paul is talking here about this reclamation project, this work by which not only am I forgiven, not only am I reconciled, but I'm restored, I'm restored, I'm remade. What is sanctification? Translated lots of ways, there are lots of different aspects to it, elements in it. Basically, it means to be holy. It means to be holy. 
depressing word, right? Holy. Asceticism. Denial of joy. You know, when I first became a Christian, I remembered my days in high school when I first heard someone present the gospel to me. And the person who presented the gospel to me was a geek. And this person who presented the gospel to me, this geek, loved me more than I loved myself. And I remember thinking, if I listen to her, I got to become like her. I've got to become a life denying, joy forsaking geek. Now, look, that tells you a whole lot more about me than it does about this person. But my big fear was that if I were to listen to what this person had to say, the last thing in the world that I could expect to know and embrace would be life. I'm telling you, this ran through my head when I'm a senior in high school. If I listen to this person, I'm going to have to follow what this person does. If I become a Christian, what it means, I'm going to have to marry somebody I don't want to marry. I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do. I'm going to have to go someplace I don't want to go. And that place will probably be some country in the third world where they will put me in a pot boil me in my own juices, and have me for dinner. That's what I thought. Now, you're chuckling, and I get that. But I dare say, I dare say, every person who has wrestled with the call to forfeit his or her life over here and follow Jesus Christ has wrestled with the very same thing. To follow Jesus means death. To live apart from Jesus means life. And Paul is telling us, in fact, reminding us that exactly the opposite is in fact the case. Isn't it interesting to you? I was, I was struck by this. Didn't hear this in a sermon. Didn't get it out of a commentary. It's one of those magical moments that occurs when you read your Bible. Did you see the connection that there is between sanctification, this word that conjures up all kinds of images and pictures of sandals and and monks' habits, and asceticism. Did you see the connection between sanctification and eternal life? And did you see that sanctification actually leads to eternal life? That this path of sanctification by which I am made holy actually is the path by which I am made more human and more alive and given an increased capacity for the enjoyment of life than I would ever have had apart from Christ. There's a wonderful book by a fellow named Cornelius Plantinga. 
The book title, you've heard me, if you've been here for several years, you've probably heard me refer to this. The book title is Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be, subtitled A Breviary of Sin. And what he does in this book is delineate all of the awful and multifaceted ways in which the intrusion of sin into the world actually steals you and me and the whole world of its joy, robs us of our joy, robs us of life. Not just me personally, but all of the structures, the human structures that are erected out of the soil of human sin and rebellion. And not only that, but the whole of the creation is robbed of its joy by the intrusion of sin into the world. And there's this marvelous passage in which he's talking about pride, hubris, this disease with which we were infected, that we were bitten with way back in the garden. This disease of arrogance and self-assertion and wanting to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves Plantinga says, when we are given free reign to indulge that rebellion, we find that we are overstuffed and underfed. And that we are shrunk down to a bare outline of our humanity. You know, Lewis in The Great Divorce, when he talks about heaven and and the, sort of the destination to which those who belong to Jesus will finally, in which they will finally arrive. He talks about those. It's an interesting sort of image. It's, it's, it's literature. It's not theology. It's an interesting sort of image and picture. He says basically those who don't embrace Jesus, when they touch the grass in the glories of heaven, it hurts their feet. hurts their feet. What does sin do? It brings pain. It shrinks me down and I take it in, I take it in, I take it in and it's like too many pancakes or too much football. I am overfed and undernourished. I'm overstuffed and not fulfilled. That's what Paul is saying here. That's why he says, That's why he says, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at the time from which the things you're now ashamed? You see, he's simply reminding them. Don't you remember? Overstuffed and undernourished. Never did you any good. What is it that God is doing? What is this work of salvation all about? It is about my reconstitution my restoration. God is at work making me more human than I've ever been with a greater capacity for joy than I could have possibly known. And so what's the path for this restoration? What's the path that we walk as Christians? What is the nature of the Christian life? What is the essence of the Christian life? It is these next two words. Return and rest. Return and rest. To translate them, repent and believe. 
repent and believe, return and rest, return and rest. It's a wonderful passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30. Where God is speaking to his people. And his people have sought. You go back and, and read Isaiah 29 and 30, and you get this verse in its context. His, his people have sought their security. This is really the truth. This is really what's going on. They have sought their security, they have sought their safety. They have sought their sense of assurance in Egypt. Now think about that. How arresting is that? They've sought through political treaties to find their safety, their security, their sense of assurance in Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? Brutally oppressive power robbed them of life, enslaved them, stole their joy away from them, mistreated them brutally, and now they're seeking an alliance with Egypt so that in Egypt they find their safety, their security, and their assurance because of the threats of Assyria. And God speaks so tenderly to them. He speaks so tenderly in verse 15 and says, in returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust, you will find your strength. Now look, I don't know, again, forgive me if it feels like I'm harping on something again and again and again. Please forgive me. Again. Maybe I'm the only one here who needs this. But it is so easy for us in this culture. I think it's been easy in every generation, but in some ways it is uniquely easy for us in this day and time when we confront a problem to formulate a plan and then execute the plan. Plan your work and work your plan. That is not how the Christian life works. It isn't. In returning and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust, you will find your strength. Repentance and faith that is the heart of the Christian life. That is at the core and center of the Christian walk. Let me try and work this out with, with a couple of illustrations. Try to, try to be practical here. Those of you who have read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, have some understanding of this. Let's just remember, it's not just scandalous behavior that we're to turn away from in order to turn to Jesus. It's not just the impolite stuff. The impolite stuff. The stuff you can't talk about in public that we're to turn away from. But there are so many good gifts. As my friend Zach said to me a couple of years ago, 
so many good gifts that can become bad gods. I said to the folks on Friday morning, a man who works 80 hours a week in a culture that celebrates work, career, achievement, success, may find that he is imprisoned by a good God, the fruit of which imprisonment will be death. Folks, I have too many illustrations, too many illustrations of men who have lost marriages and lost children, lost their own souls because this culture celebrates work. The most painful of all is the daughter of a man who said to me, my father has said relationships are a luxury I can't afford. You see, good gifts become terrible gods. How about appearance? Looks. Does growing old steal my joy? Do droopy eyelids rob me of my delight in Jesus? Do I have to have facelifts and tummy tucks? in order to be at rest. Look, I, like I'm not taking exception with work. Work is a good thing. It is a gift from God. It is something we are called to. I'm supposed to use my gifts. I can find fruitfulness and fulfillment in doing. But what happens when that becomes a God is it becomes a prison and the fruit of death will accompany it. I'm not criticizing anybody for choices you might make about having your eyelids tightened up or having your face tightened up or a tummy tuck or something like that. Men are doing it. Women are doing it. There isn't anything inherently, intrinsically wrong with it. Let's just ask some questions about it. How much does appearance in an appearance-mad culture define who I am? How about, and this drills down into the core of each and every one of us at some level, I suspect. What about fear, worry, and anxiety? These three constant companions. Events in the Middle East, Egypt, Yemen, other places. What about the economy, financial security? Do these things cause my feet to tremble beneath me, the ground to shake beneath me? Do these things keep me awake at night? Do I understand in my heart of hearts, deep in my soul, that to worry, to be afraid, to be anxious, it is common to all of us. I'm not wagging the finger. I'm simply diagnosing. These three constant companions at the end of the day are unbelief. At the end of the day, what we are saying when we are consumed by worry and fear and anxiety, we are saying two things. God is not big enough to take care of this or God is not loving enough to take care of me in the midst of it. Do I believe that God is big? 
Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that a God who is good and who is big has, in fact, the whole world in his hands? He is ordering it, directing it, orchestrating everything to this great and glorious end where Jesus is set before the whole world as preeminently beautiful and lovely and glorious before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when that happens, the things that happen in Egypt and Yemen and these other places become utterly and entirely irrelevant. Is God good and is he big? And not only is he good and is he big, but is he good and is he big with respect to me? And the extent to which I am consumed by fear, worry, and anxiety is the extent to which at that moment in time I am failing to believe And the only answer for me is to return and rest, repent and believe. Turn away from my unbelief and turn back again to this Jesus who loves me, who loves me, delights in me, gave himself for me. The one who said to his disciples, boy, take this verse, memorize it. It is not a long verse and it is a big verse. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Not a paltry bank account with $10 million in it. Not a pathetic little house along the shore in Vero Beach, Florida, Sebastian, Florida, Indian River County. The kingdom. You know, 50 years from now, 50 years from now, I know I'm going to look back at stuff I worried about and I'm, I'm going to go find Jesus wherever he is and I'm going to say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Can we go have a cup of coffee and talk about it? What is the answer? Repentance and rest. And then here's the last word, and I'll be finished with this, this last little reminder. Let's remember that as we struggle against this, as we struggle against the imprisoning, consuming force and power of sin, which always leads to death, however it manifests itself, as we struggle against this, let's remember that we do this in the context of our acceptance. We do this in the context of our acceptance, our justification, our reconciliation, our having been given access into the presence of the Father. Remember, this stuff that we're looking at in chapters 6 and 7 is between chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and verse 1 of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We struggle with this stuff in the midst of our entire and absolute acceptance. Barb reminded me last night of this wonderful card, a Mary Engelbrecht card. You've seen these cards, I'm sure, this delightful and powerful Mary Engelbrecht card. It is the picture of a mother 
with arms wrapped around her little curly-headed daughter. You don't see the face of the child. You just see the pleasure and delight of the parent. And the word on the front of the card is acceptance. No matter how deep the struggle, no matter how long you have to lean into something, battle something, no matter how many times I have to return and rest, repent and believe, I do it in the context of the embrace of the Father who has loved me from before the foundation of the world. And I must never forget that. So what is God about? He's about my restoration. The path of that restoration is returning and resting in Jesus with the reminder that through the course of it, I'm embraced. I'm embraced by this father, this parent who loves me with an everlasting love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Comfort my heart, encourage my heart, comfort and encourage the hearts of your people here. Speak to their hearts of the depth of the riches of the grace of God in Jesus. For our well-being and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.